Hi, I'm uh, Tim Caudell, and I'm sitting here with Sarah Jacobs, the former congressional candidate for the 49th district. And uh, we're here to have a conversation uh, about how things are going. So Sarah, have you been? What you been up to? Well, hey, Tim, and thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here with you all, and thanks for all of the great work that the Vet Dems does. It's really important. Uh, I've been doing great, uh, gotten some vacation time in, and now I'm focusing on making sure that we flip the house and hold Donald Trump accountable and also helping all of the awesome candidates running at the local level, uh, which I'm really excited about, including uh, Michelle Gomez up here in northern uh, San Diego mm -hmm. County, who is a military spouse yeah absolutely Michelle's amazing she's great so before we get into the, the the fun stuff how was vacation where'd you go it was really lovely I was in Mexico I got a tan uh, <laughs> I read four books which I hadn't had time to do in a you while read four books on vacation I know I'm a nerd <laughs> guilty <laughs> you're such a congressional candidate <laughs> not anymore <laughs> not yet you know your future is still very strong we'll see yeah <laughs> So I um, wanted to really ask you about a, a, an issue that's very near and dear to the hearts of the vet dims, and that is uh, recently Poway voted down plans by Habitat for Humanity to build affordable housing for veterans. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, and uh, how do you feel like we could start coalition building with local communities to proactively address veterans' homelessness? Well, I'm really glad that you brought up this issue because we know that homelessness among our veteran community is a really huge issue. And I think there are a few things we need to do. So first of all, from the federal government level, we need to get more funding. San Diego County has the fourth largest homeless population in the country. And yet in terms of funding that we get from the Department of Housing and Urban Development, we're 20th. Mm -hmm. And a part of that is because uh, we need to modernize the funding formula that the Department of Housing and Urban Development uses. But part of it is also that we have a county board of supervisors that is not actually applying for the Section 8 and other grants that they are eligible for. So we need to make sure that we are getting the federal funding that our region needs, making sure that we are protecting against Republican efforts to cut funding for Section 8 and other vouchers. And we need to be working to modernize the Veterans Administration and make sure that they are proactively working with counties to provide funding for veterans homelessness issues. Uh, but we also need to work here at the community level because uh, we have a a housing crisis and a homelessness crisis more broadly and uh, we need to work with communities to remind them that when we're building some of these low-income and other uh, housing options that we're not trying to make their communities less safe we're not trying to you know build more density just for the sake of it but these are actually people they want in their communities often it's you know people's kids who just can't afford to live in the communities that they grew up in um, and so we do need to change the conversation about how we talk about some of these housing developments and, and a big component of that is really putting a face to to the problem and showing people that it's not something they need to be afraid of having in their backyard <clears throat> that's a good point and that actually reminds me have you heard of the aspire center in old town it's, no. it's a VA building where they uh, allow veterans that are chronically homeless and they also have BTS to come in. Um, Old Town actually raised a lot of complaints about having the Aspire Center in their neighborhood. And it's actually turned out to be nothing more than maybe them smoking a few cigarettes on the sidewalk. And they realized that uh, they had actually, you know, 
been a little bit too afraid of the situation. So may, I agree that the conversation does need to change. Um, but on top of that, uh, from vet, moving from veterans to active duty, um, so the, the military plans on moving uh, 40,000 active duty military members out to San Diego, which is going to have a, an impact on affordable housing, the housing market as a whole and all up and down the county. And uh, I agree with you that the Board of Supervisors is not taking the right steps to adequately address this. And I do believe it's because most of them are now being forced to term out. So they're not taking up much of an opinion on anything. So, um, you know, in regards to the, the future of housing, uh, what, what is your opinion? What, what thoughts do you may have on how we can, you know, move San Diego in a better direction on that? Well, first, I think it's important to talk first about the active duty military members and their families. So we know that uh, the Department of Defense has gone an increased defense budget. Uh, and I think for the first time in a couple of years, we now have a pay raise for active duty military members, which was much needed. Um, but we have to realize that um, many active duty military members find the cost of living in San Diego to be unaffordable. So the San Diego County Food Bank serves around 35,000 military families every month, um, mostly because they can't afford food when they're, all of their money is going to housing. Mm -hmm. And so this is a really big issue that it can't just be on San Diego County to deal with, but we also need the Department of Defense to realize that they need to provide better salaries and better funding um, and better care to the active duty military members and their families. Um, so I think that's a really important component of this. In terms of what San Diego County can do, obviously we need to build more housing. I think we know that shortage is one of the main issues, um, but we also need to look at some of the other services that we know our military families and veterans need to make sure that we uh, break the cycle before they become homeless, and that includes increasing our ability for the Veterans uh, Health Care Administration to provide adequate mental health capacity, um, making sure that we are treating PTS, including PTS from military uh, sexual assault, which right now is not treated in the same way as other forms of PTS are. Uh, and we need to make sure that we are working um, to modernize the Veterans Health Care Administration so that people are getting the services that they need. Absolutely. And I want to just mention one time um, what you said, it struck a tone with me because I remember when I was working for uh, Congressman Scott Peters as a staffer, and I went with my colleague Sarah Zarnecki to uh, Feeding America, and uh, we went to a, a food kitchen at the USO, and you know I was very excited to go, but when I got there, I was devastated to see that half the people there were in uniform. Yeah. They were in uniform there at a food kitchen to get food to feed their families. Yeah. And I had no idea, but I remember my term in the service, and I remember I was living right off of Camp Pendleton, uh, right up here to where it crawls bad li uh, public library. And I was just a few miles away, right off Douglas Street, and I remember the apartment I lived in was below like what standard should be an apartment and they demanded all of my BAH and this because they knew exactly how much we were getting for BAH exactly. so they would charge just under that limit and I was 23 I didn't know any better I thought this was a great deal and I remember that started to spin me into poverty because 
they uh, them, them demanding that much of my salary still left me very little to help take care of myself and the other expenses that come with living off base. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. Um, so I want to move on to another topic. Yeah. Uh, you did very well in the primaries with the communities in North San Diego County. I want to ask you that in your opinion, why did you do better than others in this area? What was your, your, uh, your tactic that allowed you to excel there? So I find that communities like our veterans and military families that um, tend to be highly politically salient are very used to politicians coming and talking to them about what they're going to do for them and then leaving. Uh, and I found that what was more important was listening. And so I would sit down and listen to military spouses and listen to veterans and listen to active duty service members. And what I found was, in fact, some of the things that we talk about at a broad level were affecting them personally. But in many cases, the issues that they care about and the ones that they're facing on a day-to-day basis are very similar to the ones that the rest of our community faces, just often more acutely. So when I would talk to military spouses, I would often hear that their biggest uh, source of strain and concern and one of the reasons that many of them couldn't find jobs is because the cost of childcare was too high and there wasn't enough subsidized childcare on and near the base. Now, childcare is something that I heard from women across the district whether or not they were part of a military family. And so, you know, that was really interesting to me to hear that or uh, talking to military spouses about the quality of their child's education. And in many cases, the fact that they had to transfer between bases on a calendar year instead of a school year, and so they were having to pull their kids out mid-school year. You know, women are the fastest growing segment of our veterans community here in San Diego County, and yet we don't have anything close to adequate uh, women's reproductive health care in our VHA system here in San Diego County. And so I think it was really just that, that Uh, they wanted to be listened to, they wanted to be heard, and they wanted us to talk about the issues that were really affecting them day to day, much like the rest of our community. They're not a separate group. You know, they're part of our broader fabric of our North County community. Yeah, and uh, speak a little off the cuff, um, active duty on base on Camp Pendleton. Camp Pendleton is its enclosed little county. And I remember the hospital there, and they just recently got a brand new hospital, one of the largest hospitals in the, the military, who I want to say Daryl Issa voted against that project, which probably would, would have lost a lot of money in, mm-hmm. still voted against it, glad he's gone. Um, part of the military culture is to bring in young men and women, and you know they kind of not overtly, but float the fact that you'll get paid a lot more if you get married and have kids. And, you know, getting married and have kids, you know, it kind of, it locks you into a lifelong military career because it, it works. So it, it's kind of, you know, I'm a, I'm a male, so mm-hmm. I've never had to look into reproductive rights. But some of these women, uh, given the fact that it's part of, the, part of the, the, the allure of staying in the military, of getting, you know, married and having kids... What were some of the shortcomings on the uh, the reproductive rights that you were hearing? So uh, in uh, federal law, we have something which is called the Hyde Amendment, which means that federal funding cannot go to providing abortions. So for 
uh, military spouses for female armed service members, they are only allowed to access abortion services in the case of rape. Uh, and so for many women, uh, you know, here in San Diego, it's a little bit easier because there are alternative options. But in many places, the military hospital is the only healthcare option that they have. And they're actually not afforded their full reproductive rights because of this amendment in federal law. Wow, I never knew that. So if uh, uh, a dependent or an active duty, is it, is it just dependents or also active duty military that aren't afforded um, the, the, the access to uh, abortions? So it's any, any, it's based on the provider. So if you're going to a military hospital that's entirely funded by federal funding, mm-hmm. which mo- all, which on all base are, hospitals are, then that funding cannot go to providing abortion except in the case of rape. So it, you, you can go to an alternative healthcare provider, but it costs you more money. In some cases, if you're, for instance, stationed in Iraq, there isn't an alternative option for care. Uh, and so it really uh, hampers, you know. Readiness. Yeah. Wow. You know, as you know, I, I'm a male and, you know, I've never had to, you know, I'm very sympathetic to this. I've never actually had a conversation about this. So if an active duty woman um, uh, got pregnant, you know, we're all human, you know, while in country, whatever country that is, because, you know, just because you're in Iraq doesn't mean you're in country. You could be deployed dozens of other places around the world that are not combat zones. Right. So none of them are allowed to, they they pretty much don't have a choice but to, you know, go to f- at least partial term. That That's serious. And that does impact readiness. Yeah, and, you know, we also see it a lot in how... Um, you know, not just in the healthcare area, but we know that military spouses have a much higher employment rate, uh, unemployment rate uh, than the general population. And a lot of reasons it's because, you know, a lot of military spouses work in areas like teaching or real estate or nursing, which requires state level credentialing. And because they have to move so frequently, uh, they have to get recredentialed every new state that they go to. And so oftentimes it's less expensive to just stay home and watch kids, given how mm-hmm. expensive and time consuming both credentialing in and childcare can be. And so it's just very clear that our our services for active duty members are not really in line with what 21st century families really look like anymore. And, you know, the thing is, I was speaking earlier about the allure of being in the military. Mm-hmm. Some of these people, uh, or some of us, like I came in when I was 21. Some come in when they're 18. Um, they don't know any better. They don't know how to navigate these systems. They're for some rural town in Iowa or North Carolina, like I was. And uh, they're now they're in Southern California or Guam or Okinawa. They don't, they don't know these things. And mm-hmm. I do know this is not an urban legend. I knew of a young man, he was 20. He got married to his high school girlfriend who he moved out to Camp Pendleton. When he deployed, he left 200 frozen cheeseburgers in the freezer as food for his wife. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and she, she herself didn't know any better. So, you know, and of course somebody found out and then provided assistance, but you know, there, there, there is a serious disconnect from uh, services and care and rights to 
the people who need them, uh, not only in active duty, but also in veterans, such as the, the transitional period that, you know, all military members will eventually go through. That's right. Um, and as having been active duty, I can tell you, you, you go out of your way not to think about what that time will be until you're in it. Um, do you have any input on how to better help military members in that like very critical transitional period? I think it's uh, important that we do a better job because we actually know that that transition period is when uh, some of our veterans fall into some of these cycles of poverty that are much harder to break further down the line. And addiction. Yeah, and so, I mean, one is clearly we need to make sure we're doing uh, better mental health screenings and providing the mental health care that uh, these transitioning veterans need. Um, and we can't only look at the veteran themselves. Often children of uh, active duty armed service members have uh, mental health care needs as well because they have had to deal with their parent leaving and coming back and the constant fear of not knowing uh, how their parent is doing. And so we need to look holistically at the mental health care needs of the entire family as they're transitioning out. I know that at Camp Pendleton there is an interesting program where some of the uh, unions, the building trades, actually uh, do apprenticeships on base to help uh, help the transition so that you're getting training while you're doing transitioning. I think we need to increase those uh, opportunities. Uh, obviously, it's important that we uh, protect the GI Bill, make sure that it stays permanent and stand up to Republican attempts to, to gut it or to privatize some of the services that you can get with it. Um, and we also, I think, need to expand what the GI Bill can be used for because I think we should be treating apprenticeship programs, we should be treating other forms of certifications and degrees in the same way that we treat a two-year or four-year university degree because in many cases, those apprenticeship programs are a much better pathway to the middle class. And on that apprenticeship programs and uh, the opportunity to be an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. um, I know that there is an organization in San Diego uh, that, I forget the name, um, I'll come back to it next time. I'll give them a shout out, I promise. <laughs> uh, Vet Boss, that they were working to try to create legislation to allow the GI Bill, if somebody already had the education, to be a uh, um, grant towards starting your own business. Oh, wow, that's a super interesting proposal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, as we're working on figuring out how to expand what the GI Bill can be used for, we also need to make sure that we are protecting against mm -hmm. Republican attacks re on it. Republican attacks on it, and also, you know, predatory lenders and for-profit institutions that specifically go after our newly transitioned veterans because of uh, their ability to get the uh, GI Bill funding. And one uh, proposal that you know I had when I was running and that I think is really important that we think about is changing the rules so that the GI Bill and DOD tuition assistance programs are considered part of federal funding so that, that they can't be used as the 10% of funding that these for-profit institutions have to get from non-federal sources so that they have less of an incentive to go after our veterans who oftentimes, as you were saying, are not really sure what they should be doing, uh, in many cases uh, are just looking for anyone who's coming to give them a, a, a process or a pathway to a future and 
are, we're really seeing across the board a lot of uh, really predatory practices in regards to this newly transitioned community. I'm very glad you brought that up because one issue that is near and dear to me is the predatory practice of going after veterans solely to get their GI Bill, knowing that they have nothing to give back in return. Recently, um, the Department of Education under Betsy DeVos has uh, stopped the progress and actually reversed it in holding these for-profit institutions accountable. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, for anybody listening, uh, kind of what we're talking about is a for-profit uh, educational institution uh, and, and the for-profit can be labeled in many different ways. It's never, hey, we're coming after you. It's usually something where they're uh, assuring you that they have, they're credentialed and they can provide you this pathway to a career, but uh, oftentimes they, they don't, they can't, and they know. And the GI Bill should not be able to go to these institutions. It should have to have a credentialing which comes on a few different forms. But um, in the future, we'll talk more about that. But with you right now, I wanna talk about with Betsy DeVos and her turn on the education system. It is what, one, one of the most critical things for the future success of our country is a strong education system. Uh, in your opinion, how is she, not just with veterans, but you know, everyone's impacted by the decision she's making? You know, I think that um, Betsy DeVos and the Trump administration more broadly is really attacking uh, our public education system. So they're trying to privatize and voucherize as much as possible and take funding away from the public school system. Uh, you know, in many cases, it's because uh, if you look at what Betsy DeVos did in Michigan, she's trying to be able to get that funding to go to religious private schools, which, you know, we do have a separation of church and state, and there's a reason our public schools have to be secular. And so th basically they're trying to take funding away from the secular public schools to put it into these religious institutions. Um, I think it's really important that as we're looking broadly at what we need to do to fix our education system, we are really focusing on adequately training and paying our teachers who right now um, have to pay for supplies out of pocket, uh, in many cases are not really earning a living wage depending on where they live. Uh, and we also need to be looking at how we can make sure we're training our students for the economy of the future and what skills they're really going to need for the future. So I remember, you know, when I was in school, a lot of time went into memorizing and uh, learning knowledge. But now, uh, if you look at students, they can look at Google, they can look at their phone. So the knowledge, the information is more readily available and the skill that's more important is understanding how to analyze it and how to uh, look at competing sources of information and decide which, how they're in conversation with each other and which one seems to be the most reliable. Uh, we also know that for the jobs of the future, things like logic, uh, are gonna be really important building block skills. And so you hear a lot about teaching kids how to code. The problem is if you take a seven-year-old and you teach them how to code, by the time they graduate, that language will be obsolete. Mm -hmm. uh, so what we really need to be doing is looking at what are the building block skills of coding or some of these other jobs and making sure that they have those skills so that then whatever language is being in use when they graduate, they can pick up very quickly. 
Agreed. I think that we we constantly go really strong in one direction and forget the fact that it's weighted. Mm-hmm. You know, we cannot forget the arts and humanities because some kids thrive there, and that's a very important part of our culture. Some kids can see a math equation and answer it in their head because they just see it in front of them. You know, it's important to embrace the fact that we all think different. Our brains are all programmed. So I grew up in North Carolina. I'm 32. And we had a uh, standardized testing and that was just remember this just to forget it later. Mm-hmm. You just need to pass this class. And what it left out on us was something I had to really force myself to learn growing up as I was in the Marine Corps, which if we all know what math for Marines is, uh, critical thinking is something you have to force yourself to know because, you know, we're uh, the Marine Corps itself is very standardized. You know, mm-hmm. we know we have a book that tells us how to make our bed. So, um, I could use that book. It's a good book. (laughs) No, listen, you do not sleep under your covers. You buy another blanket and you sleep on top of your meticulously made bed. Mm -hmm. You never break the sheets. But see, it does teach you creativity and (laughs) adaptation. Yes, exactly. But critical thinking, I think, is something, you know, and we need to take STEM and we need to take the humanities and we need to. Give options. Don't tell people they're wrong for thinking one way. You know, people need to be able to embrace the creativity. And what Bessie DeVos is doing is taking, you know, the money out of one box and putting it in another much more specific box. And if you're not in it, then you're somehow wrong. And ultimately, I think it's going to make, you know, you know, poverty-stricken communities even more poverty-stricken. Well, and we know there's lots of research that's been done that shows that arts and music in schools is very beneficial uh, to the student, not just their well-being, but actually how well they do in other subjects. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the things that I found while uh, running for office was how uh, disparate uh, the different forms of providing art and music in schools was across our county. So... I went to public school in Del Mar, and uh, I I had a really great education. I had music class and art class, um, but on average, the schools in Del Mar spend $1,000 more per student per year than the schools in Vista, for instance. Mm -hmm. And many of the arts and music programs are funded by parent-teacher associations and other outside fundraising, which means the schools in areas where you aren't able to fundraise as much from the parents are getting less of these options in the classroom. And, you know, and, and it's a catch-22 because those areas such as Vista, um, uh, I had friends in Vista when I lived off Douglas Avenue, and uh, they're just maybe not able, like, they're, they're struggling just to get their kids in school. And mind you, a lot of active-duty military live in Vista as well. They the fundraising isn't isn't really an option, exactly. and then when it's there, they can't do as well as say, Del Mar or uh, Coronado, who has an amazing education system. But mm-hmm. Coronado is like this isolated military centric community where people, when I um, when I did some uh, work there, some advocacy work there, uh, families would live eight in a two bedroom apartment just to get them in that school. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, that's just a much uh, larger conversation about the education system. But, uh, you know, it's easy to say that a lot of bases have uh, isolated uh, poverty-stricken areas themselves, uh, which is why I think this is so important. But uh, would you do you have an opinion on the education of on-base 
education systems? I mean, you may not. I have no idea. So I know that in talking to a lot of the uh, military families here that the uh, educational opportunities for their kids was you know, top of mind. And I think it's really important that we are continuing to fund some of these um, DOD schools. Uh, it's less important in places like San Diego where you have quality public education that is an option. But if you look at some of the other, you know, bases around the world that you have uh, families living on, I think these, um, these DOD schools are really important, you know, often are not having the funding that they need and not and not uh, the quality that you know our our families deserve absolutely um one thing you that i thought of when we're talking about betsy devos and you know our current uh political institutions is uh recently jeff sessions announced his desire to create a religious task force uh being an lgbt man myself uh that it, it uh you Trump, our President Trump's, you know, lack of addressing the LGBT community at all, uh, while standing on it as a as a promise uh, on his campaign trail. I'm not going to lie; having him replace the second Supreme Court justice has me terrified. Uh, everything that we fought for could be rolled back like that, and uh, I, I. I remember the day I woke up and DOMA was repealed. It was my birthday. It was June 26th, the wow. last day of the Supreme Court judicial calendar. Uh, that was one of the best days of my life. I have never felt, I've never seen the sun shine so bright. Yeah. And uh, when Justice Kennedy announced his resignation, I felt that I was scared again. Uh, not before we were fighting and moving forward. Now I feel like it all could be taken away. What's your opinion uh, when it comes to, you know, don't ask, don't tell being repealed, DOMA being repealed, you know, uh, LGBT freedom, because yeah. we're just like everybody else. Yeah. And it's overwhelmingly the popular opinion to, for LGBT rights in this country, like upwards of 70%. What is your opinion on the the future of the LGBT community and in Jeff Sessions' uh, religious task force agenda? Well, this issue is deeply personal to me. Uh, my youngest sibling is a trans male, and my middle sibling is uh, gender queer and gender nonconforming. And so, you know, I actually remember when uh, President Trump tweeted his ban on transgender troops serving in the military. Uh, it was actually one of the things that pushed me into running for Congress because uh, I'd had this conversation with my youngest sibling uh, right after Trump got elected where he called me and he was shaking and was so scared and and you know I tried to comfort him like any older sibling would do and I was like don't worry you'll be fine I'll, I'll protect you and he was like I'm not actually worried about me like I'm from Southern California I have a great Lib like liberal open-minded family I'm worried about all the people like me who don't live in Southern California mm -hmm. and who are hearing very concretely from the person who's leading their country but also all of the people who voted for him that their existence is not even accepted that they don't get to exist as human in this country and that that hit me really hard and it's something I think about a lot because you know I think every child should believe that they are 
their existence is valued and that they are an important member of our country. So, you know, I think the Religious Liberty Task Force is really problematic, uh, not only because of what it will do to our LGBTQ plus community, but also because it's very clear that it's not for all religions. Exactly. Um, And we see very different ways that they are treating religious freedom as it relates to Christianity versus religious freedom as it relates to Islam, for instance. You know, I myself am a religious minority. I'm Jewish. And so, you know, to me, religious freedom is very important, but you can't use it as a way to mitigate other people's rights. Um, I am very worried about the Supreme Court. Uh, One thing that I think should uh, give us all at least some uh, sense of, of optimism, at least as it relates to LGBTQ plus rights, is that the way the decision in the Obergefell case was written, uh, which is the case that uh, granted marriage equality across the country, it it is much more concretely uh, stated than, for instance, the language in the decision on Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. And so many of the scholars that I talked to feel like the marriage equality is a much more safe from being overturned just because of the way the decision itself was written. And if you look at some of the cases that are moving up the the appellate system and and seeing what will come to the Supreme Court, there doesn't seem to be one soon on marriage equality, although that obviously could change. But um, I do think it's somewhat safer than Roe v. Wade, although obviously nothing is really safe. Um, I worked at the State Department And one of the teams I worked really closely with was our uh, team on international religious freedom. And we did a lot of work around uh, the world in protecting religious minorities. And now we have someone appointed to that who is avowedly against LGBTQ plus rights. And that is, uh, it's really problematic. You know, I was actually at the State Department working on uh, African policy when uh, Uganda and a few of the other countries passed their laws that uh, made it criminal to be gay uh, with punishment by the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the State Department worked really hard to get uh, some of these uh, laws overturned in these countries. We used the full pressure of the United States to protect LGBTQ plus uh, folks around the world. And and now uh, we know that this office will not be doing that under this leadership. And that's really problematic, not only for our community here, but really for the rights of people around the world. Absolutely. Um, so uh, yeah, moving towards the end, I want to ask you, Sarah, what is any advice you may have for you know, locals feeling like they may want to run for office in the future? That's a really great question. And one of the things I've found uh, is that you know, since the end of the campaign, I've had so many people uh, come up to me to ask about advice or thinking about running for office. Um, but most of the people who come and talk to me about it have a very uh, a similar profile. And I think that for many of us, it's hard to see ourselves as public figures. It's hard to see ourselves as leaders, especially for women. You always feel like there's someone else who knows more than you or might be more qualified than you. And so my advice is really, if you think that you can add something to the conversation, if you think that there is something that's being missed or not talked about, then you should run because there will always be someone 
more qualified. There will always be someone who has more experience. There will always be someone who, um, you know, ostensibly better fits the profile. Um, but there's no such thing as a perfect candidate and there's no such thing as the perfect time to run. And so if you think you can bring something important, then you should do it and don't wait and don't second guess yourself. Like you, you are enough right now and you can be an important voice and there isn't someone else who is going to say these things if you don't. And I think what we saw around San Diego County this uh, the past election cycle is that people really are looking for something different. They're tired of the same politicians who come with the same ideas, um, who oftentimes will come and give them the talking points and then go to their office and never really implement on it. Mm -hmm. And so there is an appetite for a new generation and for leaders who look different and sound different. And uh, so, you know, it's it's important for all of us who don't quite fit the traditional profile to to really think about uh, what role we can play and not just let it be for the people who have been, you know, told from day of birth that they are the ones that are the answers to all of our problems. Absolutely. And, you know, like you said, you can run. If you feel like you can change the conversation, you might not win, but you win by putting your opinion out there. That's exactly by right. By saying the things no one else is saying. You force them, you force everybody else to move towards what you feel that got you there in the first place. That's exactly right. So, yeah. Um, so just to wrap it up, uh, for I, I really want to thank you for coming and sitting down with us in our inaugural podcast. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. This was fun. Um, so, you know, finally, what what's your future looking like? What's what's next for you? Well, that's a great question, and I, uh, I wish I had a more concrete answer for you. Right now, I'm really focused on uh, helping these uh, congressional races in California that could hopefully help us uh, flip the House of Representatives, supporting candidates across the county who are non-traditional, who are women, young people, people of color, other underrepresented groups, uh, and really talking to young people uh, and other low propensity voters and reminding them the importance of this election and the, uh, the importance of voting. Another issue I'm really uh, passionate about right now is that uh, one of the things I learned while uh, running for office was that uh, we actually have a very high rate of childhood poverty in our county. So, uh, you know, we were talking about VISTA before. They actually have a rate of about 33% of children living under the poverty line in VISTA. And so uh, I'm uh, uh, going to be working on trying to focus some efforts around alleviating some of that childhood poverty because, you know, for every $1 that we spend working on ending childhood poverty now, we actually save the taxpayer $7 in the economic costs of poverty later on. And so it's something that is really uh, near and dear to my heart, both from a moral standpoint, but also because I think it's important in terms of the future of the fiscal health of our country. Well, thank you. And I want to, I just want to say it is so important for the people who uh, have the fortitude to step up and put themselves in the public light to continue to fight for those things. And I wanna thank you for continuing to fight for not just the veterans and LGBT community, but all the communities here in San Diego and across the nation. Well, it's an honor to do so. And um, thanks so much for everything you all do and for being an important voice for our veterans here in the county. Mm -hmm. And we look forward to having you back soon. Happy to. <laughs>